Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Slate Culture Gap Fest is brought to you by Braintree. If you're working on a mobile app and searching for a simple payment solution, check out Braintree. With one simple integration, you can offer your customers every way to pay. To learn more and put your first $50,000 in transactions fee-free, go to braintreepayments.com culture. The Slate Culture Gap Fest is also brought to you by Next Issue, the mobile app that lets you tap directly into the world's most popular magazines anywhere using your phone or tablet. Dive deeper into Vogue, People, Esquire, Time, and more with interactive content for a richer reading experience. Right now, try Next Issue out for free at nextissue.com slash culture. That's nextissue.com slash culture. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Bullets or Exposition Edition. It's Wednesday, September 2nd, 2015. On today's show, Narcos is the new Netflix show about the rise and eventual demise of the Colombian drug lord Pablo Escobar. And then Jonathan Franzen has emerged in recent years as a something of a touchstone, as a public scold, an anti-feminist, supposedly a Luddite. We discuss this and maybe also his status as a novelist. He has a new one out called Purity. And finally, a handful of incoming Duke freshmen have refused to do their summer reading assignment. Is this an act of conscience? Is it LGBTQ bigotry? Or maybe the latest in the trigger warning wars we shall discuss. Joining me today is the long-missing Dana Stevens. Dana, welcome back. Hey, good to be back, Steve. You fled to the far corners of the globe to get away from us. Where, yeah. <laughs> where were you? What did you do? Uh, I went away for two weeks. I actually was here last week when you guys taped, but I had just gotten off an international flight from Japan, so I was way too messed up time-wise to come in and tape. And uh, I think we're going to talk all about it in Slate Plus. So, um, yeah, I'll, I'll tell you my stories there, but it was wonderful and amazing. Fantastic. Well, this show is made special not only by the return of Dana Stevens, but uh, by the presence of uh, Laura Miller. Laura, you are the first person to be a host, a panelist, and an endorsement in the history of the Slate Culture Gap. <laughs> really? I-, I had no idea I was endorsed. It's like the Emmy, Gab, Tony, Grammy, oh, Oscar that's thing. Right. That's, that's right. <laughs> I'm sorry. You did endorse me, Stephen. I want to thank you. That was so incredibly sweet. <laughs> he and endorsed just you as a person coming to I Slate, know. right? I just, I, I, I didn't see that as a true endorsement. I saw that as... as Steve shamelessly flattering me for reasons that <laughs> it was all will of the above. become clear in time. It was both flattery <laughs> and an endorsement. He was buttering you up, but it was his own homemade butter. Uh, it's true. Well, anyway, um, Laura, it's uh, just amazing to have you on the show and to have you part of the Slate family. Welcome. I'm. Um, thank you so much. I'm really thrilled to be here. 
Okay, now live up to the hype, okay? Um, <laughs> okay. Narcos is the new Netflix show. It stars Wagner Mora as the drug kingpin Pablo Escobar and Boyd Holbrook as a DE agent who would bring him down. Let's, uh, let's listen to a clip. From 10,000 feet, Colombia was a paradise of untouched rainforest. But things were different on the ground. Pablo and his partners built super labs the size of small cities. From leaf to paste to powder, they produce 10,000 kilos a week. At 50 grand a kilo, that's $5 billion a year. These guys weren't fucking around. Pablo's cousin Gustavo flew chemists in from Germany to liquefy the cocaine. He added it to liquor, to coffee, and just to be funny, they put it back in Coca-Cola. Cocaine was no longer hidden alongside products. It was the product. All right. Well, Dana, we all agree that that's fairly representative of the tone of one part of the show. That's the part of the show that's uh, heavy on voiceover of this particular DEA agent. We're presumably going to follow him as he hunts down Pablo Escobar. The show's also very heavy on subtitled dialogue in Spanish. I would say has both a familiar and a unique flavor of the show. Would you agree that this feels like premium cable TV, but it has elements that are unique to it? What'd you make of it? Yeah, this show is a really chunky mix of a lot of different textures. And the one that we just heard now, I think is the, the least interesting one. It's this voiceover by Boyd Holbrook, who plays the the white DEA agent. I don't know where he's supposed to be from. He's a country boy, as you can tell from his folksy tone in the voiceover. And, uh, and he's essentially the only major character who is American and speaks English in the show. So you have that frame that's sort of Goodfellas style, right? where he lays out what the criminal is doing. Of course, unlike Goodfellas, it's not from the point of view of one of the criminals, but rather from the crime fighter. And that becomes a strange thing in this show, too, is sort of who's the good guy, who's the bad guy. But to me, those voiceovers and those framing devices were the least interesting part of the show. And they really, really go on. I mean, the exposition is considerable. And rather than, you know, the most obvious comparison point for the show would be Breaking Bad, rather than kind of building up this world, this world of of dealers and uh, enforcers, character by character and line by line, the show sort of slathers on the voiceover exposition and then cuts to the to the juicy criminal stuff. And I think that's kind of a mistake. But that's that's all the negative stuff. Let me say what I really, really liked about this show. The best chunk in the chunky mix is, I think, is Wagner Moore, the Brazilian actor who plays Escobar. Uh, even though the part, I think, is kind of thinly written, it's no Tony Soprano, it's no Walter White, he really makes the most of it. And he has this great kind of scary silence to him, this menacing stillness about him that I think really makes those scenes work. Mm. Uh, Laura, uh, it seems to me that this is, that Dana's right, that this is kind of a mix-up of a lot of different premium cable genres, like the two major ones being the portrait of an extremely dark, troubled criminal or would-be criminal, kind of in the Walter White, you know, mold, but bringing the viewer into a world in which darkness and ambiguity prevail, mixed in with the kind of history lesson that we're now getting in a lot of television, sort of recent history lesson, this one going back to the origins of the uh, drug wars. Uh, what do you make of the show? I think it's kind of a biscuit. I mean, there are things that are moderately amusing about it, but it's it's pretty derivative of Goodfellas in particular. And while I think that Mora has this kind of sort of sad basset hound 
expression a lot of the time and he's haunted by his his impoverished upbringing and that is sort of driving him to sort of beat the oligarchs of of Colombia that's kind of the only thing driving that character so everything that you get from it you get from sort of looking at his face and sort of imagining what's going on in there um and also, just as a history lesson, it seems really naive in its endorsement of the DEA and its role in Colombia. I haven't watched the whole thing yet, but eventually the DEA, and it's not really clear, parts of the American military became involved in these death squads that were running around Colombia, shooting people who were connected to Escobar, but not necessarily criminals themselves. And it got extremely dark and ugly. And the drug war itself is not really questioned in in the show. You're just sort of like, here's a crazy wild time where there were good guys and bad guys, and we're not going to think too hard about which one is good and which one is bad. I mean, Escobar was obviously a bad guy. He, he tortured and killed a lot of people. But so were the people who are fighting him and the underlying motivation of the whole thing is the thing that's ambiguous and is not really dealt with. By right. The and it mm-hmm. seems like it depends in that way. Steve, you were saying it's such a it's such a distillation of different sort of themes and modes from contemporary TV. It seems like a lot of that is being thrown onto the viewer like, oh, you know what it's like to build a crime family. <laughs> You've seen other shows about it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. It's funny. like a Frankenstein's monster sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, uh, there is a moment at the end of the. I t- Laura, I totally agree with you that that the motivations here seem opaque, and we have to read the face of the actor playing Escobar to speculate as to what they are. And maybe it's a little thin as a character study, so far at least. There's this one bit of voiceover towards the end of the first episode where the DEA agent says, "My father fought in World War II because." The Japanese attacked us on our soil at Pearl Harbor, and he, you know, ran to the recruiting office. And it's sort of this greatest generation story of his of his father volunteering for World War II, and he then draws a direct analogy to his own sense of mission as he's as episode one comes to an end, and he's getting on a plane with his wife to go to Colombia to embed and fight the drug war, and he says, "This is my war." Because just as Japanese, I mean, he's very explicit about this, just as Japanese airplanes arrived on our soil to bomb Pearl Harbor, cocaine arrived in Miami. And this is the instigating incident of the show from the point of view of the DEA agent. Now, whether or not we're supposed to take this as an endorsement of the writers of this mission or just to kind of peep into his own psyche and motivation, I'm not really sure. But it, it does seem to elide the larger question of where the drug war came from, what the politics of it were, um, and how we created a second prohibition out of cocaine, right? Because it's the interdiction and uh, prohibition that makes a crime lord like Escobar possible. I'm, Dana, not that optimistic about, I mean, what makes the great cable dramas great cable dramas are supremely ambiguous, semi-psychopaths at the center of them, and I'm not sure the show's going to manufacture one for us. 
But I think it's more than that. I mean, if you really think about the, the shows that have succeeded in that vein, they also have a huge wealth of great supporting characters and a whole kind of believable sociological universe that's that's woven sort of slowly in the course of the show. And that clearly is not happening in this show. I mean, I don't think that any of us would say that Narcos is in the category of, you know, these great cable dramas about complex bad guys that we're talking about. And, and I agree with you, Laura, that what, really what Wagner Mota brings to that character is, is not in the script. It's something that he brings from outside. I think it's worth mentioning as well that these episodes are directed by Jose Pagilia, the Brazilian director, who's worked with Wagner Mota before in, in action movies where he plays, you know, where he really gets to bust out and be the hero in two films called Elite Squad that are about um, Brazilian policing. So Pagilia has directed Mota before in, in extended crime dramas. And I think that the two of them work together well enough that they seem, like you say, Laura, to be, to be weaving some Thing that isn't even that isn't even there in the script. For yeah, the the sort of most effective moments are when he's just staring off into the distance. There's a one scene where he's looking at a tree where he's spent like a million dollars getting these egrets from. Africa or Asia or someplace, some exotic place, and train them to sit in this particular tree. And it's been this huge project, and he's just staring at that, and you're thinking, what is in his head? Like, why is he doing this? And you don't really get an answer. You just get to sort of look at his face and imagine for yourself. That's particularly chilling because there's an earlier scene. I don't know if it's the same tree. I don't think it is. But there's an earlier scene where he strings up some of the bodies of his enemies on yeah. a tree and takes photos like a, like a tourist. And that's yeah. one of the first moments that you really start to be disgusted and, and chilled yeah. by his character. Because yeah. it's the first time you see him kind of approving of an act of violence. The way that he used stillness and quiet and kind of the, the slow slow movement of his body, right? He's sort of a, Escobar was kind of a heavy guy. Wagner Mora is much, much better looking, but also has like some bulk to him. And it made me think of something great that Michael Caine once said in an interview about playing villains and that that he learned at some point playing a powerful, rich person who people are afraid of, you shouldn't move much. You know, you should be someone yeah. that people have to come to. And it seems like Wagner Mora kind of gets that in his yeah. performance. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have to say, as someone whose um, uh, tolerance for violence, uh, depicted violence is actually rather low, there's a part of me that's reluctant to go along with the classic tale of the psychopath gangster who in the end gets his and along the way to the morality tale ending where you know he's punished for all of his uh, sins you get a, an enormous amount of kind of pornographic violence that really is meant to kind of um, stir the bloodlust of the viewer uh, under the guise of eventually punishing this character I, I I don't know if I can do it I think I'm too old and and delicate. No, I understand that feeling. I, I, I think it's sort of, I sort of feel like I have to I have to save my gore for situations where it's really, really demanded by the narrative, and I'm not sure that I'm going to go down the, the road of just reconstructing the Medellin drug wars because we can. I was not bothered by the violence, but I did roll my eyes at the many, many gratuitous hooker shots. Oh, I was going to mention, I'm glad that you mentioned that because I was going to say that later in this show, we're talking about Alison Bechdel's fun home in the context of another segment. And uh, this show does not pass the Bechdel test by any means. <laughs> I really don't think that there are two female characters who even speak to each other, no. much less about anything of substance, right? They're there are all... far more completely naked female characters than there are female characters who have more than a couple of lines to Everyone's say Everyone's either nurturing and virginal or a hooker. That's yeah. it so far that I've seen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's the Metcalf test. <laughs> <laughs> it passes with flying colors. All right. That's my Phil Hartman impression for the day. All right. The show is Narcos. It's on Netflix and it's streaming. We're mixed, but maybe you're not. Come tell us about it at facebook.com slash culture fest. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor. Dana Stevens, what do we have? Yes, indeed, Steve. This episode of the Slate Culture Gab Fest is brought to you by Braintree. 
It's code for easy online payments. If you're a mobile app developer, check out Braintree, the payment solution used by companies like Uber, Airbnb, and Living Social. It's made the payment experience that's in these apps seamless, and now you can add a similar experience to your own app. With excellent customer service and simple integration, Braintree gets you ready to receive payments quickly, and their continuous support means you'll be prepared as your company grows from your first dollar to your billionth. Braintree offers support for all payment types your customers might want. PayPal, Apple Pay, Bitcoin, Venmo, cards, and more with a single integration. So to learn more and to get your first $50,000 in transactions fee-free, go to braintreepayments.com slash culture. Okay, Steve, back to the show. Thanks, Dana. All right, moving on. Jonathan Franzen's fifth novel, Purity, appears amid the media equivalent of the fog of war. So writes Slate's uh, treasured new book critic and culture critic, Laura Miller. Um, She goes on to say there have been trumpeted interviews and fatuous raves, but also misleading headlines, Twitter diatribes, backlashes to the backlash, and a deluge of emptily sassy online retorts aggregating all of the above. Laura, we get to put you immediately in the crosshairs here. You like this book. Oh, I love this book. Oh, fantastic. So you're the backlash to the backlash. We have you here in the flesh. We'll get to the book in a second, which only you have read. But let's talk a little bit about the phenomenon of Jonathan Franzen. Why did he become such a touchstone? And where are we in the history of that touchstone? And where are you relative to that history? I've been a Franzen fan since before the corrections. So so I sort of feel like my enjoyment of his books is independent of the press about them. But we we sort of live in an age where people feel like they don't have a lot of time to read and they particularly don't feel like they have time to read long literary novels. And so we have opinions about them based on reviews or gossip or interviews that the author has done or something that somebody told us at a party. And it's a lot more convenient to have an, have form an opinion on, on the basis of something like that. We can congratulate ourselves that we have a position on it without necessarily knowing that much about the book itself. And so he's in particular the center of this because there has been a two-pronged public image for him. One is that he has been sort of canonized by traditional press. Uh, He was on the cover of Time magazine with the headline, Great American Novelist. And then he got this very fawning, not very insightful review on the front page of the New York Times book review for uh, both of these were for the novel Freedom, which was his previous novel. And so this in and of itself is pretty much of an unforgivable sin among other writers. And then he has this inability to craft a pleasing public persona. He's sort of got this weird sticklerish insistence on purity in a way. Yeah, yeah. On, con- on being able to say, being able, on trying to assert exactly what he means. And, and I mean, what I often think of in terms of Franzen is is something that is true of a lot of writers who become famous. And it's very difficult for, a, for an author to become famous because they have complete control over their novel. But you really can't control the media. And so, so the media is like the ocean. You can get a lot out of it but not on your own terms. And so you just can sort of surf it if you know what you're doing to become a beloved figure. But if you try to sort of make it behave or make it tell your story in the way you want it to be told, you inevitably wind up 
becoming sort of the bad guy in in the narrative. And and Jonathan Franzen is sort of the ultimate example of that. Laura, uh, I completely agree with you. Um, and that's beautifully put. I'll push back a little bit by saying, doesn't Franzen play into the role that some people want to assign him, which is kind of uh, overly self-important, slightly anachronistic white male novelist who believes as as the default of literary history, he should be a cultural oracle and his books should be treated as cultural events. And the fact that the culture may have moved on both from white males and, and their gigantic great American novels, you know, this seems to perturb him and he takes it personally in a way, even though he gets an enormous amount of press. But but for those of our listeners, I mean, I'd love to have you answer that question, but along the way to answering it, maybe summarize for people what this back and forth between Jonathan Franzen and his critics has been. Well, I think it really got kicked off in the current form by that Time Magazine cover and that New York Times Book Review cover review and a couple of uh, commercial women's novelists, Jennifer Weiner and Jody Pico, complained. And they coined this term, Franz and Freud, and all of this was unfolding on social media about their frustration that women writers don't get this kind of over-the-top attention. And most male writers don't either. But it is definitely true that if you're going to, say, talk about literary novelists like Franzen, we, in America, we definitely have a sort of parallel prestige economy that's separate from the sort of bestseller economy that is involves how much money you make from your books. And it's definitely true that it seems that American critics in the American media place far more importance on the work of male novelists in this sort of prestige rally. And so that's a really legitimate issue. But it got mixed up with a lot of other arguments about whether commercial fiction should be reviewed as much as literary fiction and whether those particular commercial novelists are even that good within their own genre. And it kind of evolved into this huge social media-driven trash talkathon about Franzen. And it does have a lot to do with statements that he's made publicly. Although, you know, I don't want to speculate too much on what he is trying to be or trying to do as a writer. I, I'm mm. sure that's changed over time. And and I'm not a mind reader. I, I, I feel like a, a big problem with this is that it's very easy to conclude you know exactly what someone is like from a few quotes that have been lifted an interview, manipulated headlines that are meant to sort of feed into a sort of melodrama about this guy as sort mm-hmm. of the ultimate, as you said, irrelevant white male novelist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and by the way, I want to I want to leap in and say that I don't believe this about him. Dana, let's talk a little bit about Franzen as a writer. It sounds it, Laura is a pretty much un, unalloyed admirer of his work, of his fiction. You, I take it, are not. Well, I mean, I'm the wrong person in the room to ask about Franzen as a writer because I'm the only one of us who has not finished a book by him. I started The Corrections back when it came out, 2001. Is that when it came out? But it was the year. In fact, 2001, December 2001 was when I filed my dissertation. So I had a lot to read that year. And I remember starting that book because everyone was talking about it. 
it was an academic satire, at least at the beginning, the first 50 pages or so, which was I just sort of felt like being in academia was not the thing I cared about reading right then. And it just it, I just didn't care enough to finish the book, basically. So so I had, I know friends and mainly as a figure of feuds and a figure of fun on social media, which has always seemed extremely unfair to me because it's just really obvious that there's a lot of shallow criticism from people who haven't read him at all and that there's a lot of score settling from people that are resentful of, of his recognition. It seems almost at times, and the question that often arises in these in these pieces about Franzen is like, is he trolling us, right? That he's so bad at, at kind of navigating the world of social media, which of course he's not on, but is nonetheless a figure of fun on. I The new book is really different from the previous two in that it's far, it seems to me to be far less concerned with its own sort of import and to be a much more relaxed and sort of purely novelistic, enjoyable escapade in a way. I do think reading it, you do get the impression that he is trolling us in a way uh, because there are he has one of the characters, which is this sort of bitter, burnt-out white male novelist, grousing about how many literary Jonathans there are, which is, I think, a line from one of his critics. We're drowning in Jonathans. Kind of <laughs> yeah, thing, right? there's so many Jonathans. And he puts some of the criticism of the Internet age in the mouth of what is arguably the novel's bad guy, who is this sort of... Julian Assange-like figure who turns out to be pretty creepy. Although it has to be said that the criticism that he puts in that character's mouth is not criticism of Twitter or or even social media at all. It's a criticism of the surveillance of large technology companies, which is something that I think even his critics in social media would agree is a legitimate concern. Hmm. Laura, I'm picking up from you that this book is in some ways quite different from The Corrections, a book that I have to say I really admired and really stayed with me, even though there were several moments when I threw it across the room. But about that book, I I think you could say that it suffered from two related anxieties of influence. On the one hand, it's it's his relationship with the great mid-century American white male writers like Updike and Roth and Mailer, and his attempt to produce a big book as someone who may not have maybe the same richness of subject matter or cultural confidence that his predecessors have. And what gave that power is the is the subject of the book, is about the children of the baby boomer children of greatest generation parents who find their lives are diffuse, ill-focused, anxious, and unsatisfying. It seemed to me that the, that the, those two things together made a novel that was very true. As he, it's, it, from what I pick up from what you've said and what I've read, Purity is moving away from some of that anxiety, and he seems more liberated as a writer now to be less self-consciously heavy and burdened. Yes. I mean, that that was my feeling from the book. Despite it having this overdetermined title, it feels very relaxed. It's got a, a more plotty plot, if that makes sense. It's got a kind of conspiracies and secret motives and, you know, emerging connections in a way that it feels a little bit less like he's obliged to be completely realistic. So with Purity, the comparison that I made was to Trollope, who is a writer who just 
is so much fun to read and who just sort of scoops up all of the sort of people milling around in the world surrounding him and 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 throws them into sometimes slightly improbable plots and just has a great time with that and that was what purity seemed like to me it did not seem to me to be burdened by the need to make big statements about our society and where it is now uh, I just enjoyed so much. I mean, that that's what I would like to convey about this novel. I just enjoyed it so much, mm. which is one of those things that gets lost in this discussion of whether Franzen is like a stuffed shirt or, you know, a woman hater or whatever it is people want to cast him as. Yeah, we have to wrap up, but I totally agree. What people forget about the corrections is just how bloody funny the sections with Chip are. Mixed grill is a wonderful joke. The gravel mine and wherever it is, Latvia, I can't remember. Yeah. They're comic set pieces that are really genuinely funny. And it got lost in uh, in all of, uh, all of the surrounding um, uh, hullabaloo. Anyway, the book is Purity. It's by Jonathan Franzen. It's uh, controversial already. Maybe go read it and tell us what you thought of it at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right, moving on. Now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other sponsor. Dana, what do we have? Yes, Steve, our second sponsor this week is Next Issue, the mobile app that lets you tap directly into the world's most popular magazines anytime, anywhere, using your phone or tablet. And Next Issue lets you dive deeper into the story with interactive content for a richer reading experience. If you sign up for Next Issue right now, you'll get immediate access to popular magazines like People, Vogue, Esquire, Time, and also get back issues and exclusive videos and photos. So if you're like me, you're constantly on the phone with catalog companies trying to get you to stop sending catalogs and to keep the paper mail out of your mailbox. Next Issue is a great way that you can keep up with tons of magazines without having to bundle up tons of magazines and recycle them every week. And the best part is that Next Issue is offering a free trial right now when you go to nextissue.com slash culture. So again, you can try Next Issue, the mobile app that lets you tap into the world's most popular magazines for free when you go to nextissue.com slash culture. All right, Steve, what's next? Thanks, Dana. All right, moving on. A small number of incoming Duke freshmen have publicly stated on Facebook and in the Washington Post and probably other places as well that they will not be reading Alison Bechdel's graphic novel memoir, Fun Home. Fun Home was apparently a graphic novel they found just a little too graphic. As one wrote in the Washington Post, I think there's an important distinction between images and written words. If the book explored the same themes without sexual images or erotic language, I would have read it. But viewing pictures of sexual acts, regardless of the genders of the people involved, conflict. Why, why would it be conflict? Wouldn't it be conflicts? Yeah, yeah. there's some, there's some bad subject verb agreement in there. He turned pictures into his subject. All right. Well, maybe subject-object-verb agreement will be part of his freshman curriculum, but <laughs> viewing pictures of sexual acts, regardless of the genders of the people involved, conflicts with the inherent sacredness of sex. My beliefs extend to pop culture and even Renaissance art depicting sex. Laura, let me start with you on this one. This particular student is citing, essentially, freedom of conscience and freedom of religion, and also, later in the piece, explicitly the value of cultural pluralism. Does this any of that hold any water for you? And, and also, do you think it holds any water relative to the actual book itself, Fun Home? Well, I don't think that Fun Home is pornographic. I can't even, re- having read it and loved it and, and um, been a big fan of her, her previous comic strip, I can't even really remember the sex scenes in it, um, which is more than I can say for Narcos. But um, There's kind of a little sex montage when she yeah. goes off to college, but it's pretty vanilla in terms of what it shows on the page. Yeah. 
an important thing to remember is this this book was not required of anybody. So making the stance of refusal, you know, standing up to say, I refuse to, to read To do my this. optional summer reading. <laughs> yeah, is clearly a sort of grandstanding gesture of, of someone who who is not just having a moment where they say, look, I'm sorry, I know I'm supposed to do this, but I just can't, but someone who is making a big deal out of rejecting something. And so it's clearly meant to be sort of theatrical or to make a political point. And that that seems to be the real content of this rather than whether or not fun home is pornographic. It seems to me like a political move that's designed to say, just as people on the left can now refuse to read things that upset them because of their identity or their past history of trauma, so can people on the right. It's an assertion of of a sort of right to refusal and a kind of a me too gesture. But it's so poorly argued. I mean, even in comparison to we've talked multiple times on this show about, you know, campus sensitivities and people refusing to read or to see certain movies for a class. And and generally, that person has some sort of personal history they can cite. They can make some kind of argument. This guy was essentially just saying, like, I read the Bible and that's it. Well, then don't go to Duke, dude. I mean, I have no patience <laughs> with this this posting. It's just fine, dumbass. Don't read good literature. Go to college for no reason. I guess Ulysses, James Joyce's Ulysses is also going to be off the shelf, right? Along with, I don't know, any, well, he the Song he, of Songs. Is that Does that part of the Bible get included in his multiple that, readings? He that text only is, is okay. It's specifically looking at the images that he has a problem with. But you know, the claims of, of any kind of trigger warning are always that it upsets me or it's emotionally disturbing to me. And it's not something that you can, you know, you can't do you really want to get in there and start arguing with, well, you have a right to be emotionally upset about this, but you shouldn't be so emotionally upset about that? I mean, adjudicating people's emotional reactions to things is just... But what is his emotional reaction to, that sexuality is a part of human life and art sometimes depicts it? That's a pretty big crusade he's heading out on. <laughs> I, I'm, not, I'm not arguing on his behalf. I'm just saying that if if the basis of your reason for not wanting to consume some work of culture is that it upsets you. How can anybody argue about your right to be upset or how upset you actually are? You know, you can't really be that upset about it because I'm not that upset about it. That, I mean, that could as easily be an argument against trigger warnings. I mean, that is an argument against trigger warnings. You shouldn't be so upset about this. So anyway, so I I mean, I, I don't know even how genuine it is. It seems to me to be really a cynical political statement. I agree. It's complete grandstanding, and that's why I think the flap about it and the media response to it and the fact that <laughs> I think the initial posting was on a site called Post Whatever, <laughs> and, and 20 people responded to it in his in his own words, and so and yet somehow it's become this flap because it's something to have a flap about. So the whole thing just makes me think, brick yourself up in your wall of ignorance, guy. I do not, I do not care. I'm going to surprise both of you and take this young man's side, even though I don't believe he's made his own case astutely at all. Uh, in fact, quite the opposite. I think he's onto something. And let me tell you why. I agree, Laura, that this was not assigned, but it was recommended reading. I'm not sure precisely by whom, but by presumably by some university-affiliated organization. It sets the tone for the incoming freshman, uh, whether you read it or not. And whether you, whether you read it or not can become entirely passively can become a political or social marker on the part of the person who doesn't even something like a important plurality of students do read it coming in. You're suddenly forced to give a reason for not reading it. 
I think, it, first of all, his own distinction between you know graphically depicted sex and linguistically depicted sex is ridiculous. Of course, one can be not pornographic and the other can be. It's, it's, it has nothing to do with, with whether it's pictured or described in words. Um, so that we can reject as silly. However, let me put it this way. If we agree as a premise that it's possible for the university to highly recommend a, a work be read by incoming freshmen that would be found offensive on the part of a significant minority of students, for example, for example, a homophobic work or a sexist work or a racist work. Well, on what principle are we saying that students shouldn't be forced uh, to read that? Even if he was, if it was on a core syllabus, do your damn homework, no, read no, the no, book. No, no, if no, Mein Kampf is on your syllabus, you read it. No, but that's... But this isn't on a syllabus, so that's a different argument. No, but this book is not being put clinically in front of liter- literature students for study, or it's not being taught in a sociology class or a history class. In fact, it's worse in some ways that it's that it's merely recommended reading as a way of somehow unifying the incoming freshman class. And on what principle, right? Like, I mean, I think that the important distinction to make is between works I mean, I think it's sort of death of the author plus 50 years. I mean, I know that sounds arbitrary, but in in a sense, something becomes an object of study of aesthetic, you know, or historical or moral study when its political aspect in contemporary life has receded far enough into the past that it can be looked at clinically. And at that moment, no student has a leg to stand on saying, I can't look at a naked woman in a Renaissance painting. I can't read depictions of uh, sex in Ulysses. Those are preposterous claims. If if it really offends your conscience so much, then you shouldn't sign up for that particular class and possibly shouldn't be getting a liberal education in the first place. But in this instance, I don't think that it was fair to place even an implied burden on incoming freshmen to read or not read this. Because of Why? This, what, what about this particular it, yeah. book doesn't belong on a reading list? We should say, by the way, I guess Laura already did say, but Fun Home is a great book. Yes, I mean, it's, it's one of the wonderful. best novels I've probably read in the last decade. It's a, and it's a really, really well, wonderful a illustration. It's a, it's a graphic novel memoir. Yeah. And, uh, and to me, for someone who doesn't read graphic novels and who kind of resists the form because I'm just not that visual a reader, it really was a demonstration of how that particular medium can tell stories that no other medium can. I mean, it is a groundbreaking, important, wonderful book that perfectly well belongs belongs on a reading list, optional or no. Because, I, I mean, I have a somewhat strange angle of approach here. I think you can't find, if universities are truly devoted, I mean, and I mean really devoted, to intellectual diversity and plurality of values, and what they're claiming for themselves is that they provide a fairly neutral field of intellectual encounter within which ideas are discussed and disputed, to game that going in plays into the worst criticisms of the right, who want to say that, no, in fact, universities are, are hotbeds of political correctness and very specific points of view, and no work, including this one, but not exclusive to this one, and not exclusive to works that depict sex or gay life, but all works in the present, do not have sufficiently settled aesthetic or cultural value for the university, whether passively or actively, to recommend them over other works. And actually, I believe that strongly. I think I see what your argument is, Steve. What you're saying is that by picking this as the one book that the incoming class reads over the summer before they start, it's as if Duke is making a statement that this book represents a sort of shared culture for that class, and that that's what this 
Freshman is objecting to because it's as if he's coming in with an endorsement of some kind of values that he he doesn't believe in, and it makes him feel stigmatized, even to just have to refuse it. I see see what you're saying. I just don't know that I really believe that he's that offended by it. I think what he's doing is asserting his right to say, because I am offended— Therefore, you all have to accommodate me and recognize me in the same way that you're recognizing people on the left who were offended or claimed to be traumatized by other works of art. Yeah, I think that, no, Laura, I agree with what you're saying, and I think that that's, that's, that's sharp. But I just, I, but I think he's also saying something else, and he may not even be fully conscious of it. He's saying, I come from a very specific and very different background than the one implied by the endorsement of this book. And I, as a member of a supposedly liberal community, have the right to that background and a set of point of views. Now, I don't have the right to argue ad hominem, to argue without evidence, to, I mean, you know, I will participate in liberal culture fully and with the burdens of like rational thought and discourse and common discourse, but you can't assume on my part a certain kind of social or cultural unanimity. And by the way, I, prospective Duke student, may be faced with four years of this assumption that we all agree about X, whereas I think of X as something that needs to be argued for within the disputatious culture of a liberal education, right? Like, it should be part of the Socratic encounter of all of us and not the unconsciously shared uh, assumptions. And by the way, the more aggressive and conscientious a university community is about not assuming shared values, the less vulnerable they are to a reactionary argument that they essentially are hotbeds of, of politically correct unanimity. And I, so, so to me, it's, I don't admire the way this guy has gone about this, but I think it's important to make a preemptive argument against the accusation that people within a, the liberal portion of a university, and I mean liberal now in the liberal arts sense, i.e. not in the sciences, the people, I should say, that then people in the humanities portion of the um, university aren't politically and mindlessly unanimous. To me, the, sele- the idea that the selection of that particular book makes a university politically and mindlessly unanimous is itself a bigoted argument. I mean, the kid, if he had had the, the rhetorical sophistication that you do, Steve, might have been able to to make a more compelling argument. But all the, all that I saw was someone saying, this is a, a foreign experience to me and I refuse to participate in it, which is his choice. I think it's actually a sign of respect for work that is contemporary to say that it's too close, it's too near, it's too quickening, it's too uh, explosive, and it's too political for it to be homework. Really, that's the essence of my argument boiled down. Hopefully, by the time this guy graduates from a, a university, he has a more open mind. I think defining what an open mind is on the way in is actually anti-liberal. All right. That's the, you have to start your own university. I have no response to that. <laughs> All right. We agree to leave it in thorny argument. We'll leave it in the thickets. Maybe one of our listeners can pluck it out for us. But uh, anyway, the, the memoir, graphic memoir was Fun Home by Alison Bechtel. And the uh, objections to it are floating around the internet. Tell us what you think about them at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana Stevens. What do you have? 
Well, I have a book endorsement, which I hope people will not take as some sort of a statement of my values, God forbid. Um, and it's a little bit of an embarrassing book endorsement to do because I think, A, this has probably already been endorsed on this show by one of our guests. I believe Willa Paskin may have mentioned it. And also, it's just one of those books that everyone talks about and everyone is telling you to read. But I know that the way book endorsements work for me is that it's only when people from several different quarters of my life, like my mother has told me this is a great book. I trust her taste. Willa Paskin loved it and, and, and talked about it on the show. Various different sort of people from different wings of my life have told me to read these books, and now I am, and I'm in heaven. They're the Elena Ferrante Neapolitan novels. Have you read them, Laura? I just wrote a big piece about oh, them. Oh, did for you? Slate. Oh, I yeah. can't wait to read you on them because the the fourth one comes out today, I believe, right? Yeah. September first. We're doing is the a, last a, one. a big event in in Brooklyn. Oh, great for Ferrante Fever. Okay, I've I've got it, so I I've got to be there. So yeah, I, I just all I want to say about these books is that when people were recommending them to me, I don't think I was quite clear. I think I sort of thought like oh, a big sweeping epic saga. I'm going to have to learn a million names. The covers looked really sappy. Then there was a really interesting interview on Slate with the uh, with the designer of the books and why the covers look the way they do. They're the same as the Italian covers, and they're these sort of kitschy, almost uh, um, yeah. like post postcard, you know, yeah. tourist postcard-looking covers. Um, anyway, I'm not sure I love the covers and their relation to the content, but these books are so fantastic in their depiction of this long female friendship. It begins, the, the novels begin, there's four of them in the series, when these two women are 66 or so, and, and move back in time to when they're about seven or eight and then sort of retrace their friendship in the south of Italy and later other parts of Italy um, through all of those decades. And right now I'm in the middle of book three and I can't wait to go to the store and read <laughs> book four. And this, these novels just made my 14-hour plane flight to Japan and back fly by. I couldn't wait for everyone to leave me alone so I could just get back into the Elena Ferrante novel. So I won't give anything more away about them. But yes, they really are that good. You really should listen to all the people telling you to read and start with My Brilliant Friend, the first one. I so look forward to reading those. I can't wait till I have the time. Um, Laura, what do you have? Uh, can I pick two things? Of course, two. <laughs> Why stop there? <laughs> In the grand Steve tradition, just roll it out. Um, okay, one is an audiobook. The audiobook for H is for Hawk by Helen McDonald. It's a book that came out earlier this year, and for various reasons, unlike the rest of the people in my book reviewer profession. I did not read it early. I got to it very late. But the good fortune of that is that I encountered it through the audiobook, which is read by Helen McDonald herself. And it is possibly the best author-read audiobook I've ever heard. It's really fantastic. It's a memoir about by a strange sort of solitary young woman whose father has died and who is coping with her grief by training a gosh hawk. And it's about the whole history of falconry and hawk training. It's also about learning to come to terms with death and life and both of those things embodied in this beautiful, ferocious animal. You know, Laura, Julia endorsed that book on the show, not the audio version, but the, the book itself. And there's also a Slate audio book club on it. So Ages for Hawk has gotten some Slate love. Yes, it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful book just to read on the page. But, but the audio version really takes it to a new level. What's your other endorsement? The second thing is just a little essay that appeared on The All by a woman named Josephine Livingston. And Who used to be our intern. She oh. was our for, she was our last ah. intern. Hi, Joe, if you're listening. She's incredibly talented. Oh, yes. And it's an essay just about the sound of the rain and how important it is to her 
and the different types of sound. I read that. That came out a while back, right? right. Oh, of wonderful. Rain. Uh, she's encountered throughout her life living in on different continents and in different sort of climates. The spring rain of England, the torrential rains of Hong Kong, rain in Brooklyn. It's a beautiful, very subtle, very tender description of the of the different sonic qualities of rain. And you wouldn't think that this is something that could be described with so much vividness and sensitivity, but it has. And I can't recommend it more highly. Oh, I'm so glad that you went back and saw that. I remember it was a very condensed, compressed, short piece that was almost like a, a tone poem, just really, yeah. really beautiful. Yeah. Hmm. All right. Well, in total contrast to you two book nerds, I'm going to... Um, I'm going to endorse uh, a couple of uh, uh, pop songs, and those two are in contrast with one another. First is the best song that John Cougar Mellencamp ever recorded, which is Dana. <laughs> Have you karaoke it? Laura, anybody? Anybody? Uh, I, I know what you're going to say. You're going you're gonna to say Pink Houses, or you're going to say... The Chevy commercial song? <laughs> or... Uh, uh, or you're going to say um, Jack and Diane, but no, he recorded a song called Jackie O. It's from the classic album, Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> Laura, I, I know that that's in heavy rotation on your iPod. Um, but Jackie O is such a sweet little ditty. It's just the most underrated uh, pop song of all time. And it's about Jackie Onassis? It is. It's it's just the sweetest little song, and uh, I love it. And then my, the second song is in contrast to Jackie O, is an incredibly long kind of self-consciously run-on song called The Trapeze Swinger by uh, Sam Beam, the guy behind Iron and Wine. And it's a song that only I, I, I have to insist that people listen to a live version on YouTube. It really only takes on its true character when he does it live. But it is such an incredibly uh, wrenching and beautiful and poetic song. And it just kind of goes on and on and on in this slightly kind of round or circular way. Um, it's just a, it has no traditional verse chorus structure at all. It just kind of flows in and out of itself, more or less without defined edges for all of its eight minutes, but it's in, incredibly beautiful and he does it so well live. So those are my endorsements this week. Laura Miller, thank you so much for coming on the show. I hope this happens again and again and again. Me too. Thank you. Dana, are we still friends, Dana? <laughs> I don't know. Invite me to your university when you open it, and I'll I'll, I'll give the opening speech. There's there will be room for uh, PC witch hunters at our university. <laughs> Dana. We accept all comers. Dana and um, I will be there with our pitchforks. Yeah, I'll be proselytizing, <laughs> beating everyone with a graphic novel. All right, you'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com/slash/culturefest, and you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page. Facebook.com slash CultureFest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Lindsay Albrecht. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. And the Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster on iTunes.com slash Panoply. And our Twitter feed is at Slate CultFest. And one last thing. This is Joel Meyer's last day at Slate. Joel, it was a absolute total pleasure working with you uh we were face to face very little because i'm up in ghent but when we were it was a delight and uh you're going to wbez in chicago best of luck there and we will miss you an enormous amount here it's late thank you steve every time that we uh that i record the show i just draw sketches of you of what i think that you look like and i'll just send those <laughs> off to you 
All right. Well, for Laura Miller and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you soon. This is our planet here, but it won't grow. We won't have to say goodbye if we all go. Maybe things will be better in Chicago. Things will be better in Chicago.